volume. Welcome to another episode of Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. It's brought to you by Corruption Watch and produced by Volume Podcasts. I'm your host, Moibeng Valencia Talani. A few months ago, Chief Justice Raymond Zondo spoke at a conference hosted by the CSIR to mark the one-year anniversary of the release of his report. He said on this occasion, based on the slow Uh, progress of Parliament's response to state capture and its failure to put in place measures that could prevent future capture, he was of the view that state capture could still happen again. From what came out of his report, the state capture period is not one that South Africa can afford to see a repeat of. Now, there have been several criminal cases enrolled by the National Prosecuting Authority against some of the people implicated by the Commission, And there are also several pieces of legislation under review in response to some of its recommendations and a number of other measures presented by President Cyril Ramaphosa before Parliament in October last year. To talk to us today about the progress or lack thereof that has been made in reversing the damage done by state capture is Corruption Watch Executive Director Karam Singh. Karam, welcome to Zonda Commission Unpacked. Thank you for having me on the program. The last time we spoke, it was without the privilege of knowing what government planned to do in response to the recommendations. As mentioned earlier, President Ramaphosa only announced an implementation plan in October, some four months after the commission had completed its work. So to kick off our discussion today, I'd like to talk about a topic that doesn't seem to make it onto the news cycle often these days, the extradition of the Guptas. This family were at the center of the investigation into state capture by the Office of the Public Protector. The the Commission's report also features them prominently. They are alleged to have looted state funds to the tune of 16 billion rands through an elaborate enterprise. And before fleeing the country, um, of course, uh, to the United Arab Emirates. Despite efforts by the NPA to get them back into the country, they've managed to elude our criminal justice system, and South Africa's application to have them extradited back here failed. The Department of Justice assured South Africans earlier this year that an appeal process was being explored. But with all this in mind, is it a futile exercise, and should South Africa continue to invest our energy in the exercise of pursuing an extradition of the Gupta brothers. Yes. Um, I think if we're interested in the accountability for state capture in terms of you know, pursuing uh, justice, pursuing criminal charges against the, the people most involved in this, then um, we absolutely need to continue to commit the energy and the resources as required to try to bring the Guptas back to South Africa to book. You know, they, they were resident here. They, they benefited from uh, years of political patronage. Uh, and for them to be uh, now kind of fugitives from the law really, uh, uh, you know, raises questions about what is the standard of the rule of law in any given jurisdiction like South Africa uh, in relationship to the global system and in relationship to powerful people who can 
uh, uh, move around freely, uh, you know, presumably in other jurisdictions with protection and support from other people in power. So we need to continue to kind of pressurize this system, put pressure on this system. South Africa has an extradition treaty with the UAE or both signatories to the UN Convention Against Corruption. It doesn't seem like uh, we can just throw our hands up and give up on this one on the basis that uh, internationally somehow the Guptas are above the law. We need to continue to, to press and to give meaning to a kind of global enforcement system in the fight against corruption. Because, you know, the alternative is to give up. And then what does that mean? You know, what message does that send in terms of a, a kind of level of impunity uh, for what we know, you know, uh, has been, you know, we're serious, you know, siphoning off of uh, it, at an industrial scale, uh, a looting from the state by the Gupta family and, and, their, and their allies. Perhaps not as much giving up, but rather focusing on what can be achieved locally in terms of the people that the NPA pursues. The ordinary South African wants to see accountability and they want to see if a commission of inquiry, for instance, says persons A, B and C are responsible for the capture of um, really important institutions, they must face justice. Moving on, though, um, to cases that have been brought to prosecution by the NPA. It has enrolled some cases before the courts. Some of the high-profile people implicated in the commission report have been charged, but there have been some blunders along the way, a case in point being the Nulane investment case in the Bloemfontein High Court, which was dismissed due to lack of evidence. Now, this received a lot of backlash, public backlash, that is, um, but this happened in the context of an NPA that has raised capacity and resources as two of its biggest challenges in dealing with complex corruption cases. Um, there's an NPA amendment bill that's under review currently that seeks to cement into existence the permanent establishment of the investigative directorate in order for it to uh, pursue corruption cases. Corruption Watch is one of the organizations that have made submissions on the bill stressing the importance of ensuring the independence of the ID and the NPA. What changes should the NPA amendment bill bring in terms of capacitation and resourcing of such an importance, important rather, institution such as the ID? I, th I think we need to be clear that um, the capacity challenges that, are, that the NPA face in terms of successfully prosecuting state capture cases is not gonna be rectified by legislation. There's not a problem with the legislation per se. Uh, uh, the MPA have enrolled, they enrolled nine cases that they said were these seminal state capture cases relating to uh, different case studies uh, uh, that the commission looked at prosecutions relating to Transnet, relating to ESCOM, relating to Busasa, South African Airways, etc., and the like. Now, the, as you mentioned, the Nulani investment case uh, uh, was discharged at a very early stage. I mean, from a, from a criminal uh, procedure, a criminal justice standpoint, it's as if the NPA didn't even put up a case 
for the defense to answer to because the defense was able to get a discharge of that case without even pleading on the basis that, that the case that the NPA put up was so weak. Now, the question is, what is our existing legal framework for prosecuting corruption? It relates to the common law and relates to a number of statutes like the prevention and combating of organized uh, crime, uh, uh, the, the PRECA Act and the POCA Act and the like. So let's be careful about you know conflating these issues. I mean, there is the issue around the legislation to make the investigative directorate permanent, uh, and and I think I think in broad strokes we can look at that as a as a positive step, but I think the challenges that the MPA face around capacity speak to broader systemic problems within the criminal justice uh, a value chain in terms of how we go from allegations to findings of commissions of inquiry to evidence that can be used in criminal trials to successful prosecutions. And, and it's within that value chain that we see uh, uh, challenges in terms of the MPA's ability to then uh, uh, utilize what's available to them to drive successful prosecutions. The majority of the cases are still to come before the court, so it'll, it's premature to be too pessimistic, but based upon their current track record, it's not looking rosy, you know, and I think the public has a serious justification in, in, in feeling skeptical and distrustful of the ability of the, the, the current criminal justice uh, system to effectively pursue accountability by way of criminal prosecutions. But Parliament should be concerned with exploring how this institution will be able to carry out its mandate. Surely it's in the best interest of the country that they be thorough consideration for how it is to be funded in the long term? Without a doubt, you know, if you're going to create new structures, uh, uh, in order for those structures to be effective, they need to be properly resourced. So, so up to this point, uh, uh, we, we had a, the creation of the independent directorate as a kind of stopgap, as a kind of temp temporary structure to help drive these complex corruption cases. Uh, up to this point, it hasn't, it's been able to enroll the cases, but it hasn't been able to uh, uh, successfully prosecute them yet. The legislation should facilitate a more kind of efficient way of capacitating this body in, in terms of resourcing. So from that standpoint, you know, absolutely, hopefully in the process of establishing this as a permanent body, that there's a resourcing plan which is commensurate with the needs of the new body. Principally, what the ID does is the ID codifies this idea of prosecution-led investigations, which was something that was reviewed previously by the Campepe Commission when the Scorpion model was challenged. So we absolutely need to be able to have a, a closer a structured working relationships between investigators and prosecutors. But ultimately, you know, the challenge of the ID is that it doesn't solve a range of other challenges in terms of uh, um, 
institutional cohesion at the top when it comes to uh, uh, a cradle to grave fight against corruption from from preventative to uh, uh, investigations to prosecutions. And that's, you know, where where a lot of the criticisms coming from those who say that the ID is is a half measure uh, and it doesn't fully do what uh, would be expected of a, a fully independent, uh, constitutionally mandated anti-corruption commission, you know, presumably an anti-corruption commission that would also, you know, potentially have the powers uh, of a type of Zondo commission to to actually hold hearings uh, and to call people to account uh, uh, in terms of its overseeing of, um, you know, the challenges of, of corruption at, at that level. Yes. Um, moving along now, one of the central figures, if not the central figure in the years-long investigation into state capture is former President Jacob Zuma. He even had a very public falling out with the commission, which resulted in him being ordered by the Constitutional Court to return before it to answer questions. His defiance of this order led to him being charged with contempt and arrested in July of 2021. It even led to him serving a part of a sentence determined by the Constitutional Court. We are all very familiar with his journey in this regard. But the question is, has Jacob Zuma escaped accountability? Yes, yes. I think I think in many ways, uh, you know, it's interesting how you how one looks at this from um, a grammatical standpoint in terms of where the tense is. You know, is he escaping accountability? Has he escaped accountability? Will he be held accountable? <laughs> uh, I think at the moment he is escaping accountability. Uh, you know, certainly the only thing that he's been charged with, other than the uh, 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 the arms deal related charges, which he has yet to uh, uh, you know have a completed trial on, uh, as you mentioned, is the contempt. You know, but the underlying offenses uh, uh, for which he's responsible, effectively, uh, kind of instituting a kind of kleptocracy in the country through the state capture. <laughs> He hasn't faced any charges yet, and it's not clear that there are any charges in the pipeline following this commission of inquiry to charge Jacob Zuma. And I find that extraordinary. And I think it's extraordinary that we that we're, that it's not being discussed. You know that there's not kind of uh, that this isn't kind of a, a, a. I mean, I think we understand how div how divisive this can be. Uh, uh, I mean. You know the, the the riots of 2021 in KZN have largely been attributed to the fact, uh, uh, at least as a as a spark, the fact that uh, you know that Zuma faced this um, this very brief period of incarceration. But if the commission, the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture, is to mean anything, going back to the point about the need to continue to pursue accountability against the Guptas. And certainly, certainly there must be some type of a process of pursuing accountability against the ultimate architects of this whole project from the apex, from the top. And, you know, it has Jacob Zuma's fingerprints all over it. Uh, uh, if there's not enough evidence to sustain a, a criminal prosecution of racketeering uh, against former President Jacob Zuma, then 
uh, one questions the value of even having something like that within South African law. Perhaps the political solution that his followers called for at some point during the commission proceedings, um, when they argued that he was being persecuted merely for being part of the opposing faction to the one that came into power in 2018. I don't understand what that means. If he was a sitting head of state, uh, like like Vladimir Putin, uh, then, you know, then we would very much be within the realm of politics uh, because you're, you, you then start getting into these challenging issues around sovereign immunity. Uh, uh, but, you know, as a former sitting head of state, as a private citizen uh, uh, with a charge sheet almost as long as the, the, the full length of the Zondo Commission report, I don't understand how, it, how it's a political issue anymore. What gives uh, the former president that special status within our society? Does that does it mean that he's above the law? You know, I, and I don't think that that's a conclusion that we can draw. I hear you. Um, the one part of the state where political bias played a big role in how state capture was responded to, according to the Rosanda report, was Parliament. As mentioned in my opening statement, Chief Justice Zondo found that. Had Parliament done more around 2016, when the first allegations of state capture surfaced, it could have been curtailed. But it failed in its most important duty, that of holding the executive to account. Now, given those findings in the report and the position that the Chief Justice holds now in terms of Parliament's continued failure to uphold the best standards of accountability and to do so in the public interest, Will the standard of an impartial, unbiased parliament ever be realized? Well, I don't think from this parliament, certainly. Uh, uh, I think this parliament really has not covered itself in glory uh, and hasn't uh, you know, sufficiently uh, proven itself to have the political will to drive through uh, uh, recommendations in a kind of courageous way. So, um, you know, clearly Parliament has a has a basic role through its different committees to process legislation. But I mean, at a much at a more structural level, Parliament has had an opportunity to really engage with this question of its failure to provide sufficient oversight over the executive in the period of state capture. And then thinking about the structural uh, initiatives it can take to redress that, you know, and 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 it, it didn't have to come up with that uh, in a vacuum. It had very clear recommendations from the Zondo Commission. So one of them is 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 about setting up a par- parliamentary committee, particularly you know a standing committee that just looks at oversight over the executive. Uh, the other, you know, would would relate to rules around ensuring. That there more uh, uh, there's a greater diversity of parties who uh, chair different uh, uh, parliamentary committees, such as the the, pra- the practice of uh, opposition parties chairing the uh, standing committee on public accounts. You know, then there's this other really interesting recommendation which nobody's taken up about the idea of you know making a a, a, a permanent kind of committee or commission on the issue of state capture. Uh, you know, these are all kind of real structural types of uh, uh, enduring recommendations which seek to 
future-proof the democracy beyond 2024 to ensure that Parliament can fulfill its constitutional uh, 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 mandate appropriately. This this Parliament's not doing it. It's it's pushing through in a piecemeal way uh, pieces of legislation which it says are responsive to Zondo Commission recommendations, such as the Public Procurement Bill, uh, such as the you know the, some of the General Law Amendment Acts relating to uh, intelligence. Uh, there's the the Act relating to the to to IPID. In almost every case, these the, the this legislation is problematic in terms of its spirit and in terms of its content, in terms of really pursuing a, a kind of structural anti-corruption agenda. So it's it's really disappointing. This Parliament's going to run out of time. Um, what happens in terms of the new parliament, um, you know, remains to be seen. And I don't think we should be wholly pessimistic that the new parliament doesn't come in with some uh, vigor, with some new energy, with some new ideas. And I think what's going to be critical, you know, from our standpoint in civil society is that we have an advocacy agenda for this new parliament to make sure that it doesn't forget about state capture and doesn't forget about the uh, uh, recommendations from the Zondo Commission that have gone unaddressed up to that point. Could one way um, forward, perhaps, for civil society organizations be to demand of this current parliament that it develop some kind of handover process for the next parliament, uh, perhaps, that will ensure that the, the next parliament is able to explore the state capture cases or the state capture issues that are, should be sitting with parliament at the moment that it needs to tackle. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, that would be if they were, of course, to receive that in good spirits and pursue and run with it. It would be, of course, in the best interest of the ordinary South African like you and me. I guess that's a good place to end our discussion at this point. Um, thank you very much, Karan, for joining us. Thank you for your time. And thank you for giving us great insights, as always. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed the chat with you. Well, this has been another episode of Zondo Commission Unpacked. We are a podcast that is brought to you by Corruption Watch and produced by Volume Podcasts. It's been great having you. Thank you very much for listening. Stay blessed until the next time. Volume.